Welcome to the IEEE Quantum Podcast Series, an IEEE Future Directions Digital Studio production. This podcast series informs on the landscape of the quantum ecosystem and highlights projects and activities on quantum technologies. In this episode, Paul Lippmann, president of Quantum Information Platforms at Cold Quanta, shares his insights on the state of the quantum ecosystem and speaks to the transformative nature quantum holds for bringing real benefits to humanity. Paul, thank you for taking the time to contribute to the IEEE Quantum Podcast Series. To get started, can you introduce yourself and provide a little info on your background and current responsibilities? Sure. So I'm Paul Lippmann. I'm president of Quantum Information Platforms at Cold Quanta. Uh, and in terms of my background, uh, I came to Quantum uh, really fairly recently. I spent the last 30 years in the software industry, the last 15 of which in cyber security. Uh, I was a physics uh, student at university many years ago, uh, always retained a love and interest for the subject, uh, and then joined Cold Quanta uh, in uh, early 2021. Uh, in terms of my responsibilities, I, I'm responsible for our quantum information platforms business, which today uh, comprises our quantum computing business, our computer Hilbert, and uh, a variety of services that sit around that, and our quantum dynamics platform, Albert, which is not a computing platform, but rather uh, a platform for manipulating and interacting with real quantum matter on the cloud uh, to enable customers to prototype and design quantum sensors and quantum devices. So, Paul, how do you view the current state of the quantum industry? Yeah, I think the industry is really at uh, a very exciting point of transition. Uh, I, I was reading about quantum computing. This must have been maybe just three or four years ago. There was a, a NIST survey of kind of the state of the art of quantum computing. And, and at the time, it was really talking about that quantum computing was really a decade away. Um, to do anything meaningful with this technology. And I think we've seen a real acceleration of the capabilities, the variety of modalities, uh, the amount of investment, both government investment and private investment that's come into this industry over just the last couple of years. And I think we are on the cusp of transition from uh, research to commercialization. Uh, and so you look across the industry, uh, and this is not just on computing, but really kind of more broadly in quantum. Uh, I think in the next year to a couple of years, we'll start to see the first really, truly compelling uh, commercial applications of, of quantum technology to start to solve uh, some really fundamental problems and start to transform some industries in some fairly fundamental ways. Um, the power and the possibilities of quantum are, are so profound. Uh, I think one could make an argument that it will transform the world uh, in, in just as fundamental a way, maybe more fundamental a way than, say, the Internet. Uh, and this is going, again, broader than just computation. But if you think about the implications of quantum sensors, uh, if you think about the implications of uh, quantum clocks, uh, the, the implications are, are really quite substantial. We hear a lot about the promise of quantum but how do you personally envision quantum helping to bring benefit to humanity? Uh, I think one of the ways maybe that's kind of less obvious, but, but perhaps uh, really significant is the implication of quantum generally uh, for addressing 
some of the kind of fundamental challenges that we face, for example, climate change. Uh, so the, the obvious example in climate change is, can we find, can we discover um, new chemical pathways for uh, creating fertilizer, for example? So the, the, the oft-quoted Harbour-Bosch process that uses something like 2% of the world's energy and creates 1% of the world's uh, CO2 emissions, or maybe it's the other way around, but nevertheless a really substantial uh, impact. And it turns out that actually nature does this really efficiently, we just don't really understand how. And the modeling of uh, molecular processes and, and chemistry at the fundamental quantum level may enable us to find new catalysts for uh, doing this, this process that will dramatically reduce energy uses and CO2 emissions. I, I think then again, if you go beyond quantum computing and you look at quantum sensors, um, quantum gravitational sensors, quantum RF sensors uh, will enable us to detect uh, sources of greenhouse gas emissions uh, to be able to make uh, extremely precise measurements uh, of atmospheric effects. So, for example, even down to the level of saying, how does a forest fire that happens in the west coast of the US affect the weather system uh, in Japan? And not just to give us an understanding of those effects, but actually to be able to provide us with early warning and, and pinpoint uh, sources of emissions to be able to actually take action in a much more rapid fashion. So again, we're, we're kind of on this cusp of quantum becoming commercialized and opening up uh, capabilities of this nature that have just never been available to us before. At a high level, can you explain the cold atom approach to quantum computing? and address the challenges and the benefits? Yeah, sure. So at the, the most fundamental level, um, we, we use atoms as qubits. And I'm going to hold up here to the extent that you can see this, Brian. This is a, a glass cell that we uh, produce and manufacture at Cole Quanta. Uh, it, it fits in the palm of my hand, and it operates at room temperature. Uh, and it's an ultra-high vacuum inside that cell. And, and so we track clouds of atoms in the cell, and then we use lasers to cool those atoms down. We, we cool them down for quantum computing to the micro Kelvin region, which is just a few millionths of a degree above absolute zero, but that's in a, a system that's operating at room temperature. We don't require cryogenics. Uh, and each atom uh, of a particular uh, element uh, or isotope is, is exactly the same as the next, we, we get them free from nature. They're absolutely perfect. They are themselves fundamentally quantum. So we're not having to create something that's quantum. We are using something that's inherently quantum. Uh, and then we compact these atoms together very closely in a, in a two-dimensional array, uh, potentially further down the line of a three-dimensional array. Uh, and these atoms are extremely close together, just a few microns apart. So 100 qubits for example, uh, would fit in the width of a, of a human hair. Uh, and the cell I showed you before could hold tens of thousands uh, of these qubits. Uh, and then once trapped in the array, we, we use lasers to manipulate the quantum state of the qubit, to turn a, a zero to a one, to entangle qubits together for executing quantum circuits. And that really is the fundamental uh, kind of premise of the cold atom quantum computer. Uh, and you asked about the, the advantages and, and the drawbacks. Well, certainly one of the key advantages of 
cold atom quantum computer is this enormous scalability that we get from uh, having these individual atoms be qubits, the ability to pack hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of them in an array yields an inherent high scalability. In fact, in our lab, we've already tracked arrays of over uh, a thousand atoms and we have line of sight to getting to many thousands of atoms um, quite soon. Uh, the other advantage is uh, the way that we entangle the qubits together gives very high connectivity, which is important for uh, algorithm development. It's important for error correction. Uh, and then the, the other, I think, longer term uh, key advantage is the ability to miniaturize these systems down. So the core of the QPU is just a, a glass cell that would fit in the palm of your hand. And the rest of what we have in the quantum computer is lasers, it's photonics, it's electronics, all of which over time will miniaturize uh, to the point where eventually we'll be able to put a quantum computer uh, in a rack, in a data center, on your desk, uh, in an office, uh, put it on a satellite as a node in a, in a quantum network. It really opens up a range of very compelling use cases. Probably the most significant engineering challenge in cold atom quantum computing, and actually it's a fairly similar challenge in trapped ion as well, uh, is to do with the, uh, the laser technology. How do you very accurately point lasers at the qubits uh, and do that in a very stable uh, and very controlled way? And the benefit that we actually have is we get to leverage the billions of dollars that are invested in other industries in, in laser technology. So uh, I think a great example of that would be LIDAR, which is the, uh, the technology that is used for um, uh, detecting uh, the surroundings for an autonomous vehicle. Uh, and there's a tremendous amount of investment and innovation that's happened in LIDAR, uh, specifically around this beam shaping, beam steering, uh, very precise control of lasers that we get to leverage and, and reuse uh, in our technology as well. So there's a real added advantage that's the flip side of that uh, engineering challenge in scaling up cold atom quantum computers. So Paul, how important do you believe collaboration is to advancing quantum technology? Yeah, I, I think that collaboration is absolutely at fundamentally at the heart of uh, what it is going to take for quantum to move from uh, the lab to real commercial scale. And, and I think that's collaboration along a number of dimensions. It's collaboration between companies. Uh, it is collaboration between companies and, and governments. Uh, I think it's collaboration between companies, governments, and academia. And, and certainly at Cold Quanta, we're proud to have very strong uh, relationships in all three of those areas. We, we collaborate very deeply with a, with a range of, of companies, and we really view ourselves as being uh, a quantum platform company, a quantum ecosystem company. We sell quantum products to competitors uh, that we collaborate with. Uh, we collaborate extensively on R&D projects uh, throughout the industry. Uh, we have a long history of partnering with the government, the US government, the UK government, on research programs um, in, at the very cusp of, of quantum technology. Uh, and then in, in terms of collaboration with academia, uh, the company was actually born out of research that was conducted at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Uh, in fact, our founder uh, was part of the team that created the world's first 
Bose-Einstein condensate back in 1995. And we collaborate with the university there. We collaborate with the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Uh, now with a recent acquisition, we're collaborating very deeply with the University of Chicago and, and will continue to extend these academic collaborations on a very broad basis. And I think what's, what's interesting, uh, if you compare, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of discussion around how does the US compare to China in the quantum race? Uh, and I think the reason that's important is because ultimately uh, quantum is an important part of national security, certainly from a, a, a cybersecurity perspective. Uh, it, it's important from uh, a, a military technology perspective, but national security is economic security. And so going back to my comment earlier about the potentially transformative effect of quantum, if you take the long view, the countries that are investing in quantum or that are building strong quantum ecosystems will be the ones that will benefit ultimately from that economic growth. Uh, and the way that you build uh, a strong ecosystem and really strong foundations is absolutely through the kind of collaboration that I'm talking about. So I, I really do view that as being really fundamental to the whole effort to build uh, a quantum-ready economy. What are your thoughts on the role the IEEE Quantum Initiative plays in the technology space? Yeah, I, I think there's a number of dimensions to that. Uh, and I'm a, a very strong supporter, as I hope came across in my comments, of, of collaboration, of, of open communication. I, I think one of the really uh, gratifying things that we see uh, in the quantum industry is the, the level of, of sharing of, of research and, and transparency around uh, achievements. You know, it, it, it's kind of a natural tendency for a commercial entity to want to, to operate in a, in a fairly uh, closed way to uh, what we typically call in the startup world, operating in stealth, right? Um, I, I think for the majority of companies in the quantum industry, actually we see a very different kind of behavior where companies are sharing results and are sharing uh, research uh, and whether that be at, at, at conferences, uh, in papers, uh, through blog posts, there is a lot of sharing and uh, really an effort to expand the state of the art uh, in quantum. Uh, I think the other really useful part that the IEEE Quantum Initiative plays is in building the community. Um, and, uh, and then certainly in terms of, of, the, of the education uh, initiatives, workforce development is, as I think it's been often discussed, probably the most fundamental impediment to growth uh, in quantum, uh, and uh, you know, a statistic that uh, really struck me recently as I was doing a bit of research on this: the the, the U.S. alone produces sixty five thousand computer science grants uh, every year, um, but we produce two thousand physics PhDs, and of those physics PhDs, and physics obviously covers a range of, of disciplines from cosmology to biological physics to particle physics. You know, take a rough guess at how many of those uh, have the physics training that's relevant for uh, quantum computing or quantum uh, generally, you know, maybe it's a, uh, it's a handful of hundreds. And so we're looking at two orders of magnitude different in terms of the number of people who are coming into the quantum workforce compared to kind of the more general software industry, which is not to say 
obviously the software engineers are not important in quantum. They absolutely are for so many things that we do. But in terms of uh, the individuals with the deep physics training necessary to do the research, the development, the engineering of the core products, um, we, we have a talent problem. We have a pipeline problem. Uh, and so uh, education at the, the graduate school level, at the undergraduate level, even frankly reaching down into high school to start to teach the basics of, of quantum and quantum computing and encourage uh, individuals to, to take that as a career path is so important. And, and I think also kind of the, the kind of extension of that is how do we as an industry reach out to communities that have typically been uh, underrepresented in, in science generally and certainly uh, in quantum. Uh, there's a lot of effort to uh, encourage women through the Women in Quantum initiatives, uh, minority communities, underserved, underrepresented communities, because we have to be casting a much wider net uh, to build the, the workforce that will really enable this industry to thrive and, and grow uh, over the coming uh, years and decades. Thank you again, Paul, for speaking with us today. In closing, do you have any personal perspectives you'd like to share? Yeah, I think a couple of things. Um, I, I think what I personally find so exciting about this industry uh, is that I, I think where the real transformation is going to come is likely to be in areas that uh, are not yet readily apparent. So we all talk about you know, the potential for uh, quantum to transform pharmaceuticals or financial services or, or logistics, machine learning. Those are the obvious uh, areas. And, and Certainly, there will be uh, enormous implications in those industries. But, but I think it's at the intersection between disciplines, potentially, where we may see the most radical transformations. So I'm, I'm personally very excited about the potential uh, for uh, really breakthrough capabilities. And in the fairly near term, at the intersection between quantum sensing and quantum computing, and there's been some early work done that seems to suggest if we can interact quantum sensors with quantum computers, quantum signal processing platforms, um, and utilize machine learning capabilities, that may open up an understanding uh, and, and a level of, uh, of capability that is simply not possible classically, but again, on near-term devices. And there's, there's a lot of very interesting work that's happening there. And I think the potential for some, for some fairly radical loops forward. Uh, and then I think on a more fundamental level, as a, as a former physics student myself, uh, I, I think there's some potentially fascinating applications of, of quantum. Uh, for example, there's been some suggestions that um, ultra-precise quantum clocks, optical lattice clocks of the kind that we uh, are developing at Cold Quanta may enable us to unlock the secrets of dark matter. So uh, I, I think we're just getting started in quantum. Uh, I think as Jeff Bezos is known for saying about Amazon, it's, it's day one. It, it's absolutely day one in quantum. And I just can't wait to be part of the journey and, and see what comes uh, over the next few years here. I think it's going to surprise uh, all of us. Thank you for listening to our interview with Paul Lippmann. To learn more about the IEEE Quantum Initiative, please visit our web portal at quantum.ieee.org.